Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. So like I said, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. I oversee our groups and discipleship. And because of what I do, um, a lot of my responsibilities is actually on the background of our church family, so they rarely let me out and play on Sunday mornings in the sanctuary. Um, But I'm really excited about our teaching today because what I believe this passage that we're covering this morning is the single most important question that we will ever answer as followers of Jesus. Because I'll say this passage actually lays the foundation for each of us who claim to follow after Jesus, and not only us, not only you individually, but even us communally. It lays a foundation for us as a collective and as a church family as well. And the entire foundation is centered around just one question that Jesus asks in the passage. So we got a really fun passage this morning. So if you want to follow along, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew 16, 13 through 28. If you use an app, go ahead and boot it up and turn it over there. And we'll begin in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say the Son of Man is? Caesarea Philippi, which, fun fact, that's, I actually had to look up how to pronounce that word this morning, and I realized it's, it's two very simple words. It's queso and whatever Rhea word that you prefer. For me, a stomach bug been ravaging through my family, so diarrhea is the word that comes to my mind. Queso, diarrhea, smash it together, quesaria. You see why they don't let me out to play on Sunday mornings? (laughs) So Caesarea Philippi is a city 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus has spent most of his ministry up to this point. Caesarea Philippi is famous for religious worship of the Greek god Pan and the pagan god Baal. In fact, Pan is actually, uh, the Greek god Pan is where we get the word panic from. And today you can actually go visit these temples and caves dedicated to these gods. But the city is not just known for its religious worship. It's actually also known for the worship of its political leaders of its day. Caesar, uh, sorry, the Roman Emperor Philip II renamed the city after himself and Caesar Augustus. And this is a power move if I've ever seen one. Usually people name something after you if you have done something great. But this guy just went in and said, I'm going to name this mountain after me. Henceforth and forever, this is now Jeff Mountain. Deal with it. (laughs) So Caesarea Philippi is filled with religious worship as well as the the idolatry worship of the political leaders of its day. And it is in this setting, in this context, Jesus asked the question, who do people say I am? And in this space, in this cultural space and setting where there's so many competing elements of who is God, who demands and requires my worship, my love, my affection, my allegiance, my loyalty, is it one of the gods Pan or the gods Baal? Is it Caesar Augustus? Is it the Roman Empire Philip II? 
in the midst of all this, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? This would be like Jesus taking his disciple to the middle of Washington, D.C. and asked this question. In verse 14, the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? So the, the disciples answered Jesus' question. People think that you're John the Baptist, whom the prophet Isaiah said will prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Another answer was Elijah, the prophet who performed amazing miracles in the Old Testament and actually prayed and made it rain. Elijah literally made it rain like water from the sky, not in the same way little Wayne made it rain. Still, others say Jesus was Jeremiah, who was known as the weeping prophet because he constantly wept over the rebellion of the Israelites against God. All these people have great, great esteem among the Jewish people. But then Jesus turns the question around and asks, which I believe is the most important question that each of us need to answer for ourselves today, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Who do you think Jesus is? Jesus asks his disciple this question, not do what other people think of me, not what your friends think of me, not what your family, your mom, your dad, your siblings think of me. The question is, who do you say I am? Because this question digs at the very core of whether each of us believe Jesus is who he says he is, or he is not. There's no middle ground here. Is Jesus the son of God as he claims he is, or is he a pathological liar and a fraud? The very nature of Jesus' claim means he can only be one of those two. There's actually no middle ground here. Jesus cannot be just a nice guy or some really wise teacher or rabbi. Or Jesus cannot be someone just who we go to whenever we feel like we need him. He is either God of the universe or he isn't, and he managed to pull out the greatest scam in human history. So Jesus asked a question that is profoundly important, and it cuts to the core of where we stand with him. Let's keep going to verse 16. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God, and Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Look at Peter go. He did it. Our boy did it. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> Peter proclaims that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. In the Jewish culture, the Messiah has been foretold for hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus' birth. That Israel will one day get his king again. So for the nerds in here, think about Harry Potter. But a lot more important. And this king will one day come and free the Israelites for hundreds of years of oppression and pain and enslavement from foreign rulers. This is the savior of the Israelites have been praying for and begging God for for hundreds and hundreds of years so they will no longer need to be in pain. The Messiah is the hope of the Israelites. And Peter here is claiming that Jesus is the Messiah. 
And this is a massive deal because this is the first time in Matthew that Jesus explicitly confirmed that he is indeed the long-awaited Messiah. And Jesus affirms Peter in this, stating that this good news came from his heavenly Father. The, the truth that Peter declared did not come from himself, but came from his heavenly Father. But even though Peter does not quite fully understand what it really means, this truth is still nonetheless beautiful, and God revealed it to him. Look at verse 18. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So we need to pause here for a little bit because these couple verses have been a topic of a good bit of confusion and debate within the church over the last couple thousands of years. Different Christians and Christian traditions have come away with these verses with very different ideas whether or not what they're intending to communicate. And to put it as succinctly as I can here, Jesus is saying Peter's confession that Jesus is the Messiah is the foundation on which the church, the people of God, will be built. In other words, how you and I answer this question, who is Jesus, doesn't have individual implications. It has communal implications. It is not just the most important question you will ever answer. It is the most important question we will ever answer together. If Jesus is the son of the living God, that is a foundation to which we are the church. That is the foundation we are united as God's people. That means when we come together either in life group or here on Sunday mornings, that is the truth we're proclaiming together. That is the foundation that binds us together, makes us who we are. That means if we agree that Jesus is the son of the living God, that will transcend anything, anything that could divide us, our interests, our stage of life, our socioeconomic status, our political leanings, our passions and hobbies, our ethnicities. If some of us think Jesus is the Lord of life and some of us think he just gives good advice when we feel like following it, there's no common foundation there. If some of us think Jesus is worth everything we have, and some of us think he's only worth following insofar as he's the patron saint of a particular social or political ideology, that's not a common foundation. If some of us here are saying church is the place where people of God worship the Messiah, while some of us are saying church is a fun hobby that makes me feel better about myself, there's no common foundation there. Because when we gather as the family of God each Sunday, we're saying Jesus is Lord and King, and all of us are under his good and perfect reign. That is our common foundation to which we all stand on. That is the foundation of the church. And in verse 19, Jesus makes some pretty big statements about the type of authority and responsibility he has given the church that will be established. This idea of binding and loosing and giving the keys to the kingdom of heaven is an idea that actually comes up in the next couple chapters of Matthew. And we'll look into all that in a lot more detail then. But suffice to say for now, Jesus bestows a lot of responsibility onto his people based on their confession that he is indeed the Messiah. Let's keep going, verse 20. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone 
that he was the Messiah. So after this massive groundbreaking moment where Peter identifies Jesus as the Messiah, why would Jesus tell them not to tell anybody? Simply put, because it's not time for people to know he's the Messiah yet. Now, us reading this passage today, it is time for us to tell people. It is time for people to know. So just in case you were hesitant because of that, the restriction from Jesus no longer applies to us. So you can tell as many people as you like that he is the Messiah. But back then, it wasn't time yet. And Peter's next comment is about to reveal one of the reasons why it wasn't time yet. Because they didn't fully understand what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah. And that helped us color what happens next. Take a look, at, look with me at verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This part always makes me chuckle because I've been trying to imagine myself in Peter's shoes. I cannot imagine the emotional upswing when you're affirmed by Jesus and then only to be soul crushed in this very same conversation. And it's not just Peter in this case. It's actually the disciples as well that all of them had in their head that Jesus would be this conquering king that will once again establish the nation of Israel again, where they will prosper again. But Jesus is not interested in establishing an earthly kingdom, and what he has in mind is so much better than any of the disciples could dare to dream of. They just don't know it yet. So when Jesus said he's going to be handed over and killed, it is understandable that Peter bristles at that. You see, this is actually a major turning point in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus spent most of his ministry up to this point performing miracles and teaching the crowds around the Sea of Galilee. But from here on out, Jesus has set his eyes on going to Jerusalem where he will eventually be killed. Starting here, Jesus' focus, Jesus focus now is to help his disciples understand that while he is indeed the Messiah, but they have the wrong idea what type of a Messiah he is. This will be the first of four times Jesus will explain to his disciples that he will be killed and resurrected on the third day. The image of who Jesus is in the minds of the disciples is actually not who Jesus actually is. And Peter goes as far as to rebuke Jesus while it's incredibly easy to give Peter a hard time because that mug just does not know when to stop talking. Remember the context where Peter's coming from. Here stands before Peter the long-awaited Messiah, the deliverer of the Israelites. This Messiah is now saying he's going to die. How can this conquering king deliver God's people from tyranny from the Roman Empire if he is going to die? How can freedom be obtained through Jesus dying? No one in the human history has ever been declared king by the means of them dying. Victory is only secured through the vanquish and death of your enemies, not yourself. 
when we start to see things from Peter's perspective, it actually makes sense. His response is, never, Lord, this cannot happen to you. It is your enemy who will die, not you. It is you who will be victorious while your, van- your enemies are vanquished. We need you to be alive to free us. Do you remember us, your people, who've been praying and begging for you to come to free us? We've been doing this for generations. And Jesus responds to all of it. It's probably none of us will ever want to hear from him. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind of the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus rebukes Peter. Because Jesus knows what was before him, what is to come. He knows that he's going to the cross. He knows he's going to suffer and die. While Jesus is the indeed the long-awaited Messiah, he will indeed free his people from oppression and tyranny. He will create a kingdom for his people. He will indeed be the conquering king that vanquished his enemies. He is indeed the hope of God's people. But you see, all who Jesus is and what it means is so, so, so much more than Peter or any of the disciples or any Israelites could dream and dare to hope for. He is going to free his people from oppression and tyranny, but not just from the Roman Empire. He's going to free them once and for all from the enslavement of sin and death. And his people will no longer be just the Israelites. His kingdom will now be available to every nation and tongue who will confess that Jesus is Lord. Everyone can now be a part of his kingdom. And unlike any kingdom of this world, his kingdom will never end. Jesus is a far different image than what Peter has in his mind. And the difference is not that Jesus is a lesser or bad version of the Messiah. It is, in fact, the opposite, that this Messiah is better than what Peter could ever dare to dream. This Messiah is too good to be true. This Messiah is not coming to kill those who oppose him. He came to die for them, to redeem them, to free them. This Messiah is going to vanquish death an enemy that all of us are hopelessly have any chance to defeat. And this Messiah is going to come to give us life, life to the fullest. And this Messiah one day will put an end to all the pain, death, and suffering. What a beautiful Messiah this is. While it is the best news for all of us in this room that Peter got it wrong in thinking that what type of Messiah that Jesus will be, I can't help to think as a pastor of our church, that this could also be happening in our own church family. Do we have the wrong image of Jesus in our own minds? As we follow after Jesus, we'll come across things we disagree, how he says life ought to work. And in those moments, do we assume we're in the wrong and he is in the right? Or do we rebuke Jesus like Peter did? Or maybe we're not so bold as to rebuke Jesus. Do we start to redact? to change who we think Jesus is into a version that's a lot more palatable to us, that's a lot more accessible, a lot more safe in our own eyes? Did we make Jesus into our own image? Here's my fear for our church family. If since following Jesus, how you live out your sexuality, how you handle your money and finances, how you approach your interpersonal relationships and friendships, how you think about social issues, justice issues, If he has never challenged your assumptions or ideas in those arenas, 
this is a good chance you have made up a version of Jesus. There's no way for us to follow after Jesus and do not come across something that challenges us. That we come across something that we differ on what Jesus says how life ought to be. And in these moments, if Jesus is God, he gets the right to see the world differently than we do. And a different lies in which that he is right and we are not. Another way to tell if we have made Jesus into our own image is if Jesus did not give you everything you want, is he still Lord? Is he still worth following? Maybe not everything. Maybe there's something in your life that you a desire or wish, something you feel like you need, that you deeply want outside of Jesus. If he doesn't fulfill that, is Jesus still who he says he is? Is he still worth following? Is he still good? Is he still your hope? Or Jesus is only as good as it benefits you and you get your heart's desire. Do you still see Jesus as worthy and beautiful on his own or he is only beautiful and worthy to which he satisfies you? Some of us may have begun following Jesus because we have a different version of Jesus in our minds than who he is. Some of us start pursuing Jesus because we're hoping that he'll give us a spouse or children. And Jesus may not give you that. And trust me, I understand the pain of that. But what he does promise is, in Deuteronomy 31.6, he promised that he will never leave you nor forsake you. In Romans 8, Jesus promised nothing in all of creation, nothing, nor angels, nor demons, nothing can separate us from his love. Not only Jesus has given you himself, he has adopted you into God's family, that you have now gained your heavenly father as your father, and along with that, new brothers and sisters. He has indeed given you a family. Yes, it's different than your hope that Jesus will give you a spouse or children, but it's much, much better because you get God himself and a family that will be forever. Some of us maybe started pursuing Jesus because we're hoping he'll give us the things we need or the stability and safety we desire, and Jesus may not give you that. But he has done all the work needed for you to be internally secured for the coming of the new heavens and new earth where there will be no longer any need, there'll be no more suffering and pain, no more surprises that will blindside us. Jesus going to the cross, dying for you, and resurrecting on the third day means that this future is certain. It is secured, and it is coming. It's different from the hope, your hope of a safe and comfortable and secure life here and the right now, but what he is offering you is much better, an eternal life with him when there will be no more needs and brokenness. Let's keep going to verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Then Jesus goes on to say, if you say I am the Messiah, here's what it looks like for you to live out what you have proclaimed. 
Here's the implication to the most important question of who do you say I am? And Jesus said the implication is this. It's to deny yourself, to pick up your cross, and follow after him. To deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow after him. If the, t- if the type of the thing that Messiah does, which Jesus eventually will go to the cross, suffer and die, that he has denied himself in order to give us life, if that's the thing that the, the Messiah does, that is also the type of thing that the followers of the Messiah do. To deny yourself, to deny the things you want to do, to say no to some of your own passions and dreams, to say no to some of the things that you believe will make you happy, to say no to the things you think that will, you have to have to, to live, to say no to some of your own hopes and dreams, to give up all of those and follow this Messiah. And don't miss this. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, this is what it looks like. The calling to deny yourself is not exclusively reserved for the overseas missionaries. It is not exclusively reserved for those who are called to do full-time ministry. The calling to deny yourself is not just for pastors or your life group leaders or anyone who takes Jesus more seriously. This is a calling for all people who claim to follow after him. And this right here is another communal implication to Jesus' question, who do you say I am? Because as the gathered people of followers of Jesus, this is what we're called to remind one another of. That we're in this thing, that this whole follow after Jesus thing together, we're, we're called to leave everything behind and follow this same Messiah. If we claim Jesus is all we have and all we need, this is what it looks like for us to keep each other accountable. This is what we have agreed to as being a part of Jesus' church. And when our lives don't align up with it, we have the responsibility to remind one another, to help one another to spot those blind spots, to encourage one another to repent, to turn away from it and realign our lives under Jesus' good and perfect reign. Jesus goes on to say, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Jesus is saying, what he is offering you and me is better than anything this world can hope to offer. Look, even if you're Jeff Bezos, who owns pretty much like half of planet Earth, I mean, that mug went to space just because he was bored. Even if you are him, that you own just about everything, Jesus is still saying, my offer to you is better. That an eternal life with me in my kingdom is far better than what you have. And I don't know if we realize this or not, what Jesus is claiming here what he's calling us to do is incredibly difficult specifically for us as 21st century Americans. That this concept of denying yourself, the call to come and die, to give up everything, is, one, is, is a belief that goes against something we deeply hold on to as Americans. We as Americans deeply believe the concept of the pursuit of happiness. Is one, if not the most important thing in life. In fact, it's in the Declaration of Independence that we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, 
and the pursuit of happiness. And this call to deny yourself, to come and die, flies against that. This calling for all of us probably goes against something we deeply believe more than we ever realize. But it's going to be worth it. Look at verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they have done. One day will come where we'll come face to face with Jesus, and we finally get to see him fully for who he is. We'll truly just understand how good he is, how beautiful he is, how worthy he is, how wonderful, how compassionate, how just, how glorious he is. And everything we have laid down, everything we have given up, everything we have denied ourselves of in this life, with tears in our eyes, we'll say, worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lamb of God who died for my sins, who bore my shame, and I am finally home to be with my Savior. He is our King, where his people and his kingdom will be everlasting, and we have no end. In fact, in Revelation 21, this kingdom, this kingdom is described as this. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and first earth has passed away, and there is no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I'll give water without cost from the spring of water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. A kingdom that will have no tears, mourning, crying, or death. A kingdom that is new, that is not like anything we have seen on this side of heaven. A place we're all meant to be from the very beginning. A place we have searched our whole lives for home. That is the kingdom of God. On that note, let's look at our last verse, verse 28. Jesus, truly I tell you, some who are standing here, as in the, the disciples, will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now let's pause briefly here because a lot of people are, are pretty, this is a pretty puzzling statement. Because Jesus just said one day he'll return in glory with the angels and reward each person for what they have done. And then here, he says some people standing there that day will not die before they see his kingdom arrive. I mean, that's a little bit weird, right? Because Jesus' kingdom doesn't seem it has arrived then, let alone even now, as best as we can tell. And every one of those disciples are dead. Like, real dead. Like, as dead as dead people can be. So what's going on in verse 28? The truth is, a lot of different commentators 
on Matthew say different things, but I think the most likely is Jesus is drawing on a connection that his disciples don't yet fully understand, the idea of already and not yet kingdom. In a way, the kingdom of God will not come fully until Jesus returns to make all things new. But also in a way, his kingdom is already here and now. The Gospel of John mentions a couple times how becoming born again enables you to see the kingdom of God, as in present tense, the now. So to be sure, none of the disciples will see the fullness of the kingdom arrive before they taste death, but they all witness Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection before they taste death. Some of them will not taste death until before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. But in light of all that, let's go back to Jesus' original question. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? The question, the answer to this question has tremendous implications to you personally, to us communally, and how you live out your life. So I want us to spend some time today wrestling with this question. If you find yourself answering other than Jesus is Lord, don't be discouraged. He's inviting you into his kingdom today, right now. And there's nothing magical you need to do. A simple prayer of acknowledging Jesus is indeed who he is and asking the Holy Spirit to help you live into that reality is it. And for those of us who claim to follow after Jesus and proclaim that he is indeed Lord, that he is indeed the Messiah, I want us to give us some time to reflect and ask the Holy Spirit to help us fully grasp the implication of Jesus is indeed Lord. So the first one is, who do you say Jesus is? Have you personally arrived at the conclusion that Jesus is who he says he is? And that he has the authority he says he has in your life? Where isn't that functionally the case in your life? The second question is, who do we say Jesus is? Are our relationship with each other at City Church, specifically those in our life groups, are they built on the foundation that Jesus is who he says he is? Do our relationship and interactions reflect the reality that Jesus is the authority of our lives? Do we build these relationships on other foundations other than the proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah? And the third one is, what are the implications of Jesus being who he says he is? If Jesus is who he says he is, what should that mean for my life? Is there anything you haven't functionally submitted to the lordship of Jesus? What does repentance look like in that area of your life? So this is what I want to do. I want to give us a moment right now to honestly just wrestle through those questions. I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to do that. We'll do that. Holy Spirit, we invite you in now. Would you help us see? Do we truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah that we have been waiting for? That we have longed for? That he is the hope 
we've been searching for. Holy Spirit, we ask in the next few moments, would you help us see where we stand on all of that? We ask you to speak to us.